Please call the roll to ascertain quorum. Rommel? Present. Wood? Here. McKinney? Here. Purview? Here. Quorum. Thank you. Quorum is present. We know of no individuals that wish to speak with us this afternoon from the community. Okay. Greg is the first one. So uh, we'll take those without objection, and we'll take those speakers uh, as their items come up on the agenda. I presume none of them are here for general public comment. Are there any disclosures or recusals today? Seeing none, thank you. Uh, next on the agenda is the presentation of the consent agenda. It looks as though most everybody uh, in the room has been here before including uh, the non-city staff that are with us. So you know that we uh, utilize a consent agenda at Board of Estimates meetings, uh, and simply we try to accomplish as many of the non-controversial legislative items in one motion as possible. So with that said, I'd like to ask my colleagues which items they would like uh, separated for discussion uh, purposes. So why don't we just start this way, Alderperson Wood. Did you like to start? Thank you. Agenda 19. Any others? Older person Wood at this point? Okay. Uh, older person McKinney? Um, is that for the reimbursement? Which one is that? The police chief's reimbursement is agenda item 15. Yes. Do you like separation on that one? Yes. And our speakers as well now, it looks like. Any others? Older person McKinney? Um, I think that that's it. Let me go on to um, the next. Person. I okay. think that that's it. I'll All right. Back. Thank you. Alderperson Rommel. Thank you. I'd like to, um, I don't really want to pull all of three, four, five, and six, but one could be an example to help explain what those are. I don't know if there's a better one than the others to pull. Mm -hmm. but Why don't we just separate? I had a quick question on three through six anyway. Those are the annual FTA grant authorization. So why don't we separate three through six and we'll take them up in one motion okay. when we get to those shortly. And then I guess I would like to hear more about 13, the audit plan. Yes, we'll have we'll have a presentation uh, on the audit plan. Would be one. Yes, agenda item 20, which may or may not be in closed session this evening. Are there others, Alderperson Rommel? Mm, well, I guess because she's here, we should pull number 12. Number 12. Just to hear more about like the grants. Are you complete then? Alderperson Rommel, that's your list. Alderperson McKinney. I'd like to know more about the, um, uh, which one is that, the, the, the blighted study, number 1646529. Item 16? Yes. Thank you. Are there any other separations requested by the body? Seeing none, then, uh, Alderperson Rommel could uh, actually let me just make sure that my list is all accomplished. I think it is. Move well, actually, could, I'm sorry, could I interject? I had a question or two about agenda item number eight, which hasn't been separated yet. And let me just make sure my list is all incorporated here. Otherwise, it is. So just to confirm that we all have the same list before I actually rec recognize you for a motion, Alderperson Rommel. The separated items at this point are agenda items 3 through 6, 8, 12, 13, 
15, 16, 19, and 20. Alderperson Cheeks, did you wish to have us pause for a moment? No, see. Okay, thank you. Alderperson Rommel, a okay, consent motion then, please. Adoption of items 1 and 2, item 7, items 9, 10, and 11, item 14, item 17, and item 18. Is there a second? Second. It's been moved and seconded. Does everybody have the list? Looks as everyone's set. So those in favor of the consent motion will say aye. 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 Opposed, no. Motion carries. Those items are all recommended for adoption to the Common Council. I thank those of you that are with us that might now be able to depart. I want to also congratulate Street Superintendent Kelly on his uh, reappointment. Thanks for sticking with us uh, here in City Hall for another term. And, and uh, although we'll have you up here in a moment, Chris, for agenda item 8. Alderperson Rummel, would you wish to make a motion for adoption on agenda items 3 through 6? I move adoptions of items 3, 4, 5, and 6. For a second. The Transit General Manager to file applications for 5307 grants. It's been moved and seconded to recommend adoption of items 3 through 6 relating to Metro Transit FTA grants. And Wayne is with us to answer a question or two. Alderperson Rummel, did you wish to start? Well, they were just sort of... Oh, oblique <laughs> especially the first one was like from 2015 and the next one's 2016 just kind of walk us through what we're doing here um, you probably all know that every year we give council approval to apply for the federal grant programs that we're eligible for these there are three primary grants they're both at uh, 5307 5337 and 5339 what we are asking for approval here on is the 2015 and 2016 grant applications. Um, we are not, the FTA has requested that we not apply for the 2017 grant yet until the federal budget is ironed out a little bit better. <laughs> but the reason that we are late is uh, on the other years is essentially an oversight on our part. Um, the reason for that is we, well, one of the reasons is we just overlook it, but uh, the federal system for applying for grants was, uh, they, they changed over from one system to another a couple of years ago. And at the time that they shut down the first <coughs> system, they told everyone, that the new system would be available very shortly. That new system did not become available for well over a year. So essentially we could not apply for federal grants that we were eligible for for a significant amount of time. When they finally did become, when the system did become available, we applied for the grants, but because uh, because we were late in applying for the grants anyway because of the federal system, we forgot the step of getting approval from the council to actually receive that money or to apply for those grants. That's it in a nutshell. Thank you. Further questions of Wayne? 
I have a question or two, Wayne, if I could. So, and I presume this question has been asked and answered by myself or others over the years of, with these annual resolutions that come before us. But are the FTA grants always in in arrears, if you will? Or so we're in 2017 and we're applying now for 2015 and 2016 in the case of the Section 5307 grant. Do we always do it after no, the? No. Um, once the once the federal we the the grant is actually apportioned to different uh, transit agencies. Well, you know the federal the feds have a different um, fiscal year. They're October through September. So on October first of 2016, the new federal 2017 fiscal year began. Um, the grants are, in theory, available to us at the very start of that fiscal year. But first, they have to be apportioned. So we did not receive the apportionment for 2017 until about a month ago. But it, the only apportioning just means we can actually apply for the grant at that time. But they only apportioned the, uh, um, the amount from October 1st through April 28th. They've done that in the past where they just say, okay, you guys can have this money. We know for sure. But because of the questions revolving around the federal budget, they were not going to commit to the rest of the year. The FDA asked us, however, even though that first portion was available to us, please don't apply yet. I'm not quite sure what their reasoning was, but that's why we would normally apply for the 2017 grant somewhere in mid-2017. But the feds are asking us to hold off and apply for those. So the 2015 grant we should have applied for in 2015. The 2016 grants we should have applied for in 2016. But we didn't because we oh, uh, we did. The applications have been submitted. We've actually already received the vast majority of the money. We just did not take the required step of getting the council approval to make those applications. I think you anticipated my last question. And that was, so in the case of the 2015 grant, it's uh, about $7.5 million from the federal government. Is similarly in 2016, the 5307 grant is about 8.1 million dollars. So, so even though we're, you admitted that that we're made an error and are after the fact, those funds though have already been transferred to us, or most of them the of have. have so it's not like we've been sitting on. But, the, but yeah, uh, you know, probably 90 percent of the funds have already been drawn down from the federal uh, government to. The city. So these expenditures were all made by by Metro, and yep. and we have received most of the reimbursement. We're just doing the yes. Now we're just going back and getting the approval from the council to do that. Thank you. We have the we we got the approval to spend the money. We just haven't gotten the approval to get it reimbursed by the feds. I see. So we're backwards just as it relates really to the common council. Pardon? We're just backwards, kind of as it relates to the. The council. Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Seeing no further questions, those in favor of the motion for adoption will say aye. 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 Opposed, no. Motion carries. Takes us to agenda item number eight. Uh, Alderperson Rummel. 
I move amending the adopted 2017 capital budget to appropriate 214542 of geo borrowing for the Streets Division Pavement Improvement Project at Sycamore. Is there a second? Second. Second to recommend adoption. As I mentioned, Chris is here, and uh, he's coming forward. We can congratulate him again on his reappointment by the mayor and soon to be confirmation by the council for another stint as our superintendent. So, Mike. Well, I'll hold off on my questions along the one separated this and see if any others have questions about this item. I guess it's just me then. So so my question, my, my first question is why wasn't this project requested or adopted as my read of the of the 2017 adopted capital budget? I, I'll, speak to, I'll speak to that. Okay. So basically it was an error on our part. It was submitted correctly by streets, and then there was an error between um, – projects that were slated for cancellation and those that were slated for reauthorization and uh, this one just got dropped in the process and after the budget was finalized streets discovered that we'd made that error and so we have to come back to ensure we have sufficient authority for this project thank you hmm? so streets divisions blameless <laughs> so the error the error was the side of the table that's kind of our theme so far tonight, maybe, is some errors. <laughs> so since this wasn't discussed in the context of your capital budget request at BOE, can you briefly explain the need for Sycamore um, is, to be uh, re yard repaved? Waste, yeah, our yard waste drop-off site there is it's 38 years old, 37, 38 years old facility at Sycamore. Uh, so all the pavement is that old. With our yard waste site there, we have forestry there, we have... Uh, weights and measures there. It's it's used facility a lot, and the blacktop around the building is getting real old. So it needs to be replaced before we start having problems with um, major breakdowns of all the, the blacktop. We've had it uh, sealed two or three different times in the last 38 years, but it's it's time to replace it. And then, as I understand the resolution, you're transferring for about $400,000, $410,000 from your streets equipment budget, which uh, was to uh, purchase two vehicles, I read, in the adopted budget. So can you speak, Chris, to, to if we use that money, then I, I take it you feel that we don't need to purchase any vehicles this year in your budget? Okay, if you're speaking about this 410 that we yes. canceled... Yes. That was money from, I believe, 2015 that we never, we, we did not need. Right. So we, we gave that money back. We, so yeah. that's the reauthorized money that you were, were you talking, Dave, about? Right. So that, that, pro, that amount should have been canceled Correct. and wasn't. I see. We did not need So that. now we're moving that project, that money to the project that should have been reauthorized. So your streets equipment line item will not be in the right. hole because it was just a typographical error or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. Thank you. Any further questions? Seeing none, those in favor of the motion to adopt will say aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Thank you both. Takes us to agenda item number 12, Alderperson Rommel. Uh, move approval of the 2017 Neighborhood Grant Program recommendations made by the staff review team and authorizing the Planning Division Director, Comptroller, and City Attorney to execute grant agreements on behalf of the city. Is there a second? 
Moved and seconded to recommend adoption of the resolution. Hello, Jewel. Hello. Jewel is here to answer any questions. Older person, Romal, I believe you had a question. Oh, or two. I just pulled it off because I think this is uh, one of those things that we should always tell the world that we're trying to help do these grant programs. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us about how many applied and what kind of the trends are or any other observations you have. Yeah, our the neighborhood grant program is thirty thousand dollars on an annual basis in which we then allocate to the eligible applicants. It's business associations, neighborhood associations, planning councils, and if areas don't have any of those, we can um, do a waiver for those particular areas to ask for a grant to build leadership within a neighborhood area and or do some community projects activities in the neighborhood area to really bring um, residents in the community together. This year we had 12 eligible applicants come through the doors um, and I'll always say we have 12 applicants coming in for and vying for the $30,000 but we fund sometimes the entire project or just a portion of the project and so the more dollars are going and invested in the neighborhood that the neighborhood themselves fundraise or if you look at the applications the number of volunteer hours individuals actually do do doing those good things on the neighborhood level um, so this year we have a variety our our lowest application came in at a thousand dollars from the Worthington Park neighborhood who really is looking at we have some security food security access issues and they are looking to start a farmers market but as part of that they really want to engage the community and taking a look at a much broader spectrum of food access and so they came in for a thousand dollar grant and that's on this application recommending for approval in which um, once again, bringing individuals in to really look at that issue on a local kind of, of, of um, landscape. Our largest grant came in, request came in from the Broadway Lake Point in which they really do want to, they've seen their neighborhood changing over the years and so they really want to conduct a lot of ethnic festivals, picnics, um, talks, a series of talks to bring the community together and really taking a look at building the neighborhood association capacity. But applications from all over the city, very creative kind of projects. What I like about this is it's really what the neighborhood wants to do. And, and so it's really that creativity that's bubbling up from residents or the business association on how to make their area better. Thank you. Are there any further questions of Jewel? Mm. Seeing none, thank you very much. Any discussion? Seeing none, those in favor of the motion to adopt will say aye. 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 Opposed, no. Motion carries. The next agenda item is an audit plan, and I hope Danielle won't hate me even more than she might already from our February meeting. But because we have members of the community here wishing to speak on agenda item 15, I was hoping without objection we could take item, place item 13 upon the table without objection and immediately proceed to agenda item number 15. Seeing no objection, Alder Person Rommel, a motion on 15. Um, authorize the city to reimburse legal fees to Chief Michael Koval as allowed under sections 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.09, 62.
Print 7, Print E, Wisconsin Statutes, and amending the 2017 adopted operating budget to appropriate $21,953 from the contingent reserve to direct appropriations. And your motion is? Did you make a motion to adopt? I didn't hear the word adopt. adopt. Is there a second? Second. Moved and seconded to adopt the resolution. As I mentioned, we do have members of the community wishing to speak that are with us today. Uh, the first uh, is uh, registered in opposition wishing to speak, Gregory Gellenbeck, uh, to be followed by Brenda Conkle. Welcome, Greg. State statute which supersedes any city ordinance only allows reimbursement if the official prevailed. Even a determination of guilt by the PFC Cobalt did not prevail. Locke's Law Dictionary um, defines prevailing party as the party in whose favor a judgment is rendered regardless of the amount of damages awarded. And many court rulings use such a definition. For example, Brown versus Richards, um, Utah Appellate 992, it is the determination of culpability, not the amount of damages that determines who is the prevailing party. U.S. Supreme Court for our, the Hobby, 1992, in which they analyzed who was a prevailing party in a civil rights claim, ruled that a party obtained a finding of wrongdoing was awarded no damages was a prevailing party. There are many other such examples. Being found guilty, being found culpable is not prevailing. Prevailing equates with exoneration or no, no determination, where charges were dismissed or withdrawn before determination was made. Where there is a determination of guilt, it doesn't fit the concept of having prevailed, unless prevailing is redefined to include successfully evading discipline. May noted that MPPA contact provides for reimbursement of, quote, the employees exonerated by the police and fire commission of all charges or the charges are otherwise dismissed or withdrawn. I believe the general intent of otherwise dismissed or withdrawn is to cover complaints that don't conclude in a final determination, a decision in whether or not to sustain a charge. Many PFC cases end without a final verdict because the plaintiff is found to lack standing, because of a defect in the complaint, etc. In Cobalt's case, we're talking about something entirely different, a case in which the officer was found guilty of misconduct and the decision contains a clear reprimand, but further punishment, specifically a suspension and discharge, was not imposed. The confusion in this case stems from a decision that sustains the charge of misconduct, then an order that dismisses the matter because the PFC didn't have recourse to a lesser penalty and didn't want to suspend. The combination of explicitly sustaining a charge and dismissing is irregular and should not be treated equivalently to a dismissal prior to a verdict. Other aspects of how the PFC handled the case also appear irregular. For example, statute specifies, quote, findings and determinations here under and orders of suspension, reduction, suspension, or, or reduction or removal shall be in writing, and if they follow a hearing to be filed within three days thereof with the secretary of the board. The PFC didn't issue a decision in that time frame. Furthermore, COBOL is not a party to the MPPOE contract. Moreover, was the intent of the council when it passed the ordinance language to reimburse if a chief is found, if a, if a chief is found, to reimburse if a chief is found guilty, but no formal penalty is imposed? Or was the intent instead just to reimburse the exonerated or if charges are withdrawn or dismissed prior to a verdict being reached? I believe the council's intent was the latter. Cooper's case has been set as a precedent. He was exonerated on 18 of 22 charges and found guilty on four minor charges, but was not suspended, demoted, or discharged. In Cobalt's case, there were two incidents that were based on the complaint, his behavior in the stairwell and his behavior in the council chambers. He was found guilty of misconduct for the former, not the latter. The city attorney in 994 concluded that Cooper could, could be reimbursed because he exonerated on, quote, substantially all charges. That's not true of Cobalt. In, moreover, regarding the four charges in which Cooper was found guilty, the, slope, the city attorney stated, quote, I cannot disregard these findings of misconduct and recommended that Cooper not be reimbursed for legal representation regarding those charges. Um, I'll just do my concluding Wrap paragraph. up, please. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll wrap up. 
We all received um, emails from you, too, as well, there, so thank you for those. Um, there is no legitimate case for reimbursement here. It would be perverse. It defies common sense to claim that being found guilty but escaping punishment is a proper definition of prevailing. You undermine the legitimacy of the system if you re redefine it that way, and it would be affirming Bertie Sanders' contention that the game is rigged. We all know the game actually is rigged, but it doesn't have to be fully rigged in Madison. Here, a plaintiff on fixed income who couldn't afford an attorney who's rep represented by a volunteer who isn't a practicing attorney went up against one of the best attorneys in the city, won a finding of guilt. In that context, reimbursing the defendant's legal charges would be unjust. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? Seeing none, thank you again. As I mentioned, the next uh, registrant is Brenda Conco. Welcome. I feel like I'm in the middle of a really bad law school exam um, because if you look at the way a lot of these things are written, it leaves a lot up to interpretation, and I don't envy you being in the position of trying to decipher what all of this means. But I do think that um, part of this that you have to remember is that this is up to you guys, right? The, the state statute is discretionary. It says that you may reimburse the funds. It doesn't say that you have to. You pass a resolution. But in that resolution, it does say that another resolution has to come before you, presumably, so you can make a decision about something. So it seems to me that you left yourself some discretion on the table to be able to determine if these funds should be paid. I know a lot of this will um, sort of revolve around if he prevailed or not, um, and I think that you were done a huge disservice by the PFC attorney in the way that the opinion was written, because clearly you can read it in two different ways. Um, but I think that if you look at the language of your resolution and the language that was pointed out in Attorney May's opinion, you'll see that um, he wasn't exactly exonerated. Um, and so I think that, again, leaves you some wiggle room for if you're going to pay these fees or not. I also think that the Supreme Court language that's pointed out in Michael May's opinion is also very good language to look at where somebody um, may prevail <laughs> technically, but on a technicality, the legal fees shouldn't be paid, and I think that's sort of a general legal concept that is, that is followed quite often. Um, and then the last question I really have is, is, were these fees reasonable? We don't know. We haven't seen the bill. We don't know. How are you going to determine if it was reasonable in order to pay $22,000 almost? Should it have been 15000 Should it have been 12000 Should it have been 10000 How will you be able to make that determination if you don't have information in front of you to determine if it was reasonable or not? Um, I do think, though, that the bigger problem here is that what kind of message will this send to the community? Um, it's hard enough to file any kind of complaint with the police department. It goes into some sort of internal review process, and it disappears, and it comes back out, and you're not allowed to know a lot of information about even sometimes who the officers are with the whiteboard incident. So, you know, this is a mysterious process, and the only way to bring things out into daylight is for you to spend money to go in front of the PFC and pay legal fees in order to get some sort of justice. And I think that in this case, if you were to reimburse the chief for his fees, that sends a very strong message to the community that the chief can do whatever he wants, the rules don't really apply to him, and there will be no consequences. And I think that's the real problem here is that, you know, it's a lot of money that he paid for that attorney, but that was his choice to do that. And had he acted differently along the way, maybe some, some other resolution could have been had before we got to the point where people were getting an attorney to file in front of the Police and Fire Commission. So I think that you guys have the discretion. I hope that, that you use it wisely and that you send a strong message to the community that complaints against 
the police department against the chief in the future will be taken seriously and that it's worth people's time and effort to be able to um, bring these complaints forward and try to receive some justice. So thank you. Thank you. Any questions of Ms. Conkle? Saying none, thank you again. On, on Ms. Conkle's point about the we don't have the itemized billing, uh, we do have at least one or two copies up here of the itemized billing from the Pines Bach law firm. Is there an interest in any of my colleagues to have their own copies? We can ask that copies be made for everybody. Is there yeah, an interest at all? There is an interest. Could Betsy or Travis volunteer to make copies for us? Uh, we can email them to an email to if you have electronic. Mm -hmm. Could that be attached to the latest Yes, it will be. Confidential mm -hmm. anyway. Nope, it's not. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Betsy. So uh, I'm presuming that there are more uh, questions of Attorney May, so why don't you join us, Mike, please. Did you wish to make any remarks before or just respond to questions um, at this time? No, I think I would like to say a few things to begin with. Um, I see this much different legally than has been presented to you in terms of your discretion and what's available to you because I read the resolution that you passed last year as very clearly adopting a policy that you want to have the chiefs treated just as other members of the department would be treated. Um, that resolution may use the word if they prevail, but it uses as both as to individual officers and, and to the chiefs. And there's no question that if this were another officer under the language in the MPPOA contract, which is specifically, again, referenced in your resolution of last year, that you would be paying the fees for that officer. The, the charges were, as the language used in the uh, contract says, otherwise dismissed. Um, and I don't think there's any way you can get around it. That's what happened here. The PFC otherwise dismissed them. Um, they decided not to exercise any of their discretion. I, I, I didn't look back at the Cooper one very seriously, but if Mr. Gollenbeck's information is right, it sounds like he received a letter of reprimand in that case, which is quite different um, than what happened here. So it, it, it seems to me the question is, are you going to live up to your resolution, which says um, rather than try and fight about this every time, we're going to treat the police chief and the fire chief just as we would one of their officers um, if they had a proceeding in front of the police and fire commission. And if that's what you intend to do, then I read it as the, the language in that contract, which you referenced in, in that resolution, as saying very clearly that if the charges are otherwise dismissed um, in any way, they uh, should be covered. So that's why I, I think some of the discussion about prevailing party kind of gets us off on a track that um, I don't think we need to go, go down. A um, couple of other issues. Uh, I did look at the bill and somebody was formerly in private practice. I thought it was reasonable. The rates are higher than they were when I quit practicing some 13 years ago, but that's not surprising. And you're talking about one of the you know, best lawyers in the city in terms of uh, defensive chief. Um, the mayor wanted me to note one thing, and that is that you know historically reimbursement is based on the merits, not on whether you like the PFC decision, not on whether you agree with it, um, or not on whether you like what the officer did or agree with that. So to try to try and be very, um, very objective about it. Um, that's all I have for right now. But I'd be happy to answer any questions on my opinion or anything else resolving revolving around this. Thank you. Before I. Um, recognize colleagues for questions. I do want to apologize to Mary Anglum. I overlooked her registration form. She does not wish to speak, but Mary Anglum uh, is in opposition to the resolution and, and, as I say, did not wish to speak. So apologies, Mary, for overlooking your slip until now. Questions of Attorney May, Alderperson mm -hmm. McKinney. Thank you very much. I specifically um, pulled this off because there, uh, there was no 
itemization um, in Legislar. And so for the sake of transparency, if a bill was submitted uh, for reimbursement, I would have expected to see what that bill looked like. And so um, since I've heard that it's not private, um, it should have been a part of the of Legislar. I emailed um, the uh, council office at 256 and to ask where was the itemized bill. And um, I, when I got it, uh, was in between time and we met at 430. And so I wanted to know why wasn't it included in Legistar? I think just because nobody had asked, uh, asked about being put in there. Um, I know it was turned into the finance department at some point, but I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. Okay. Like it's not a secret. And, and right. Passport, I, I got right. I can, I can just interject on this point that if, if you have questions on that score, we could also ask Assistant Chief Williams and Terry Janet to come forward because I know that those two individuals were the ones that drafted the resolution and entered it into Legistar. I don't know if you wish to ask them that. Right. Right. Um, and it's, it's based, it's when we're looking at trans transparency. We have all received quite a number of emails on this, but mine was very basic because uh, the question is that we're asking um, to make a decision about reimbursement without actually seeing what we're reimbursing, and I think that that came before us, and so that immediately was what I question is, is that where is the bill, and to determine whether it was reasonable or not, uh, so um, the Attorney May's explanation of that, I wasn't even getting into that at all, I just was, uh, not just, the expectation that it should have been included, and could you speak to that? Having not experienced the situation before, I did ask um, what I should do with the invoice, and I was directed to provide it to uh, Dave Schmidke, which is what I did. Um, I was prepared to put it in Legistar if that was necessary, but what I was told to do was to provide it to okay. Mr. Schmidke. Okay. Is there any reason that we could not have it in Legistar? It will be put in Legistar tomorrow. Okay. Thank you. You all now have copies as members of the board estimates and uh, have them electronically as well. And, and uh, thanks to the finance department, thank you, Betsy, again for doing this. We do have a number of photocopies of the itemized billing. If anyone present wishes a copy, uh, Betsy can pass them out to you if anyone present would like a copy that's in that gallery. Yes, can. thank you. Further questions of Attorney May or Chief Williams, Elder Person Rommel? Thank you. Um, I, I guess I'm still, I, I hear what your point is about the merits of the case, so I'd like you to go into that a little bit more, because when I think of the merits of the case, several, there would be several findings. I think there were three altogether. Two were dismissed as not being valid, and one, they found misconduct, but decided their remedies didn't, seemed excessive or extraordinary compared to what they determined was this the incident. So I'm stuck there, Attorney May. Yeah. Again, I, the, the sort of analysis you're talking about would be who was a prevailing party, which I think if we were just operating under the statute, it would be very important to go through that analysis. And if we were just operating under the statute, you would have that discretion to say, I think the fees are too high or we're going to reimburse this amount or that amount. But when I look at the resolution adopted last year, 
which says in its title and several times within it, our intent here is to treat the chiefs just as we would treat any of their officers when they go in front of the police and fire commission. Um, then it's not just a question of what you mean by prevailing or another way to look at it, and the way I actually look at it is we've defined in that contract what we mean when an officer has prevailed. If they're exonerated, if the charges are otherwise are dismissed, or if they're withdrawn. If they meet those, one of those standards, then we consider them to have prevailed, and I think the chief met that middle standard. Um, part of the problem, I think, with um, the alternative view is that you're essentially saying the only way you prevail is if you're exonerated. And if there are other reasons that the charges get dismissed or otherwise, we're not going to say you prevail. If they never got to the merits, how can we say you prevailed? And I don't think that's right. I think, I think it's those three standards that you have to apply if you're going to live up to what I think the intent of the resolution was, which is that the chiefs are going to be treated like any other officer in front of the police and fire commission. So that's, that's why I, I recognize that there is that dilemma if you were still under the statute of trying to figure out you know, they found misconduct, but yet they dismissed the charges. What do you do with that? And I mentioned, you know, at least one case where you can look at what they meant by prevailing party and whether a technical victory is a victory or not. Um, there probably are others. Uh, but I thought when I looked at the resolution and the language in the MPPOA contract that we didn't have to go down that road because it pretty clearly says if the charges are otherwise dismissed, then we're going to pay your fees. So that's, that's my analysis. The question you have, I think, would be very, very relevant if we were just operating under the statute and we had this question of prevailing and, and the council may reimburse, then you'd have a lot of discretion in terms of what you do. I think you're much more limited um, because of the resolution of last year and because of what you promised uh, to the other police officers in the contracts. Okay, so let's do a little more delving on page three of where you reference the the section. There's you know, if the person acted within the scope of his or her employment and the employee is exonerated. So it sounded to me as if the PF said, in this one case, he did not act within the scope of his employment. So you have this if and and construction, and then later, you know, therefore kind of thing is an and or. Like, and so to me, I guess, I wish I had thought through the or, the very last or, when we and we had discussed it more, at least to understand what that meant, but I still don't, it doesn't seem like he acted within the scope of his employment on that particular charge. Well, I have no question he acted within the scope of his employment. That's a very, very broad term. Well, to, to uphold the standards of conduct. No, that, that's, a, that's a very, very broad term as it's normally applied within the scope of employment. I have some question why it's even in here. It may relate to a different statute about... Um, the obligation of a municipal body to indemnify officers for actions they take, not the 620907. I've looked back on all kinds of PFC decisions. They never talk about scope of employment. And I asked Scott Herrick about that, and he says that's, a, that's like a foreign concept to us. Essentially, we're asking whether or not the charges fall within the code of conduct that we have jurisdiction over. Um, so they really don't talk about scope of employment. But if you... If you look at the cases that do talk about scope of employment, there are all kinds of things that you wouldn't think fall within scope of employment, including sometimes criminal actions where they say, no, you were, you were within the scope of your employment when you did that. Um, so that's a, that's a very, very broad term, and it's very hard to get outside of it. And particularly in civil actions, no plaintiff wants the defendant to be outside the scope of employment because then they lose um, insurance coverage. 
the money is going to come from. So it's been interpreted by the courts very, very broadly. I've got no question that he was within the scope of his employment here. I could search down a bunch of those cases if you wanted me to, but I'm quite confident of that. Thank you. Further questions? Alder person clear? Thank you. So the part I'm trying to reconcile here is I think PFC has kind of left it a little bit ambiguous, and I don't know if this is typical of how they operate or if this is unusual, and maybe you have more familiarity with this. But when they talk about the three different charges, essentially, they don't use that word, but on the first one, they conclude the respondent's comments made in the stairwell incident do, in fact, constitute misconduct. So, I mean, they don't use terms like guilty or not guilty or exonerated or anything like that that would be more clear. But then at the end, as you point out, they say, you know, all three are dismissed. It seems to me that they've left this ambiguity, and I'm trying to understand whether that is typical or is it intentional or is it sort of a little bit careless that they've left us with that conundrum. It's very hard to discern the minds of the person. I realize I'm putting you in the position of trying to interpret them for them. And so, I mean, what I would have preferred was something where they very clearly went through the code of conduct that was at issue, the number of counts that were made, because each complaint had a specific number of counts, which ones they found some validity to it and which ones they did not. Then we would have a much better idea of how substantial the violation was or how unsubstantial the violation was, and it would have helped us a lot more. I haven't tried to go down and parse that out looking at what they said here and how it would apply to the complaints, because that is what I would have preferred to see here. Right. I agree. That would be much more clear. Much more clear. And, again, I'm not sure exactly what they're saying. All I know is that the last line is that the charges are dismissed, and the standard that I see applied to other police officers, which I read your resolution of last year applying to the chief, says if the charges are otherwise dismissed, we pay your fees. They could have said something like we dismiss 17 of the charges and find that two of them are sustained. Right. Then we'd be in a little different world. Right, right. And they do say, I mean, I found this language interesting, that conclude that such misconduct does not warrant any of the extraordinary disciplinary actions available to us. And they had talked earlier about, you know, what are the actions that they have available to them. It's almost like they're saying if we had other options available, we might have imposed a letter of reprimand, for example, which was not one of the ones available to them. But they didn't say that. I'm reading it in, reading into it. Right. Well, and also they didn't say, I mean, they could have concluded that this incident where we found there's a violation was significant enough for a one-day suspension. But they didn't do that either. Right, right. That would have made things different. At least it's clear that they didn't do that. Right. There's no ambiguity about that. Yeah. So, yeah, we're left to try and read through it. And, again, when I got into it and looked at what I saw, the standard that's now applicable to the chiefs, which would not have been applicable a year ago, that's why I concluded that he's entitled to the reimbursement. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Attorney Mayer, Chief Judge Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
as a follow-up question, the way that the approved ordinance was written, um, is it that we need to firm up the, the language to take out that ambiguity, or what is, what is your thought related to, to that? With respect to the PFC decision or with respect to the... Uh, the way the ordinance is Oh, the is resolution written. was the written? The resolution is, yeah, is it, written. I'm if, sorry. If you wanted to revisit what that standard is going to be that you want to apply in the future, that is something you could do and, and try to make the resolution more clear or, or state something maybe different than what I read it as stating right now. I'm just basing it on what I, the way I read it from the way it was adopted last fall. But mm -hmm. that certainly is within your discretion in terms of do we want to revisit that resolution and exactly what standard we're saying applies to the chiefs? Thank you. Alderperson Cheeks. Attorney May, I appreciate your um, <clears throat> explanation of sort of the distinction between the state standard and our state statute and, and what we passed. Um, I find um, I find it a little bit frustrating that we're in this place where we uh, have this ambiguity and, and that the PFC is even, that it's even possible that PFC would, would put us in this situation. Do we have any um, opportunity to, uh, do, you have, do you have any initial thoughts on how do we avoid scenarios like this in the future? Um, I think it would be, um, there would be no problem if you wanted to direct me to, you know, have a discussion with counsel for the PFC and make suggestions on things we would like to see included in their decisions that might help us. Um, and similarly, as I just mentioned, if you want to do some clarification of your own resolution, that might help us. We can't really force them to do anything. Um, but I, I think, you know, they would try to accommodate us to this extent they felt it was within their authority and, and that they could do it. And as I said, the one thing I would have liked to have seen was a more detailed explanation of, of how they were dealing with each of the many, many counts in the complaints. Yeah, I, would, I would certainly appreciate that if, if you can relay that back. I, I presume um, that there must be members of the PFC that see this discussion unfolding here and in the public, et cetera, that think, oh, what a mess we've, you know, um, allowed for, right? And surely they didn't do that intentionally. Yes, thank you. Very good. Further questions? Again, as either Attorney May or Chief Williams, Alderperson Rummel. So we don't have any revenue to send it back to the PFC for clarification where there's, we're done as far as that goes? <laughs> um, we're not actually a party to the case, right. you know. I mean, yeah, uh, if the chief wanted to go back and ask for clarification he might I doubt he'll do that he got all the charges dismissed I think he I think he believes and I know his lawyer thinks that that's what I was hired to do so um, I, I think we ought to I mean I think this is one of those things where on a going forward basis we ought to um, talk to the PFC attorney and maybe the commission itself and just make some requests I'd like to think a little bit about exactly what we want to do other than this one of of more detail of, of how you dealt with each each claim. I mean, I think of a normally in a court decision, they will say these things are dismissed and these are, um, you know, beyond the statute and these are going to go to trial or here's the things and, and we don't have that here. Um, 
I don't. I guess I don't think we have standing to go in and say, "Can you can you clarify your decision for us?" I think we have to deal with it now. And, and so the three standards, like with dismiss, demotion, and exonerated is the first one. Yeah. Are they, do they have any other standards? I mean, are those ones that are somehow given to them by state statute, or is it ordinance? Or? No, that's what we've adopted to apply to all other police and firefighters. So we've created <coughs> ordinance language that governs the PFC that sets these kind of maybe a high bar on, in my words. No, no, these are these are the standards that the city has agreed to with uh, the police and firefighter unions as to when we will reimburse them if they have to defend themselves in front of the police and fire commission and that's so that's in the collective bargaining agreements with each one of those organizations and, and that was what that was what the city referred record, to last the, fall the when chief it said, isn't a, a, a signer to the MPPOA contract yes. right and that's that's what I interpret the resolution last fall as saying that we're going to treat the chiefs like we would treat these other officers reference this provision in the MPPOA contract that gives us those three standards that that we have used to say we're going to consider that you're a prevailing party and we're going to pay your fees if you meet one of these standards. If you wanted to change that, you either have to change the reference that we use with the chiefs or negotiate it with the unions. And that would be a different process than what we're talking about today. And so there's no way that, you know, and it seems to me if I, if I ruled the world, I would say, Chief, please go get some anger management training. There's no way we can, you know, make that recommendation as a, as part of this authorization. Um, not as not, not as part of this authorization. I mean, you might suggest that to the chief, either formally or informally, or ask the mayor suggest it to him, or or something like that. Um, I don't know that you, absent some, I'd, I'd have to think about whether or not there's any other way to. To, to do anything other than suggest that to him. Thank you. Yeah. Other questions? I, I do have a... Oh, yes. Alder person clear. No, no, no. Okay. I, I prefer going last as chair. Go ahead. Um, Thanks. Do you have uh, any knowledge, maybe actually Alder Rear might be able to answer this question, but um, when former Chief uh, Richard Williams had a well-publicized uh, incident with his firearm. I think it was in 98 or 99, obviously before your term as city attorney. Um, my, my recollection is that he actually wrote himself a citation for that, um, but I don't know whether there was ever, that was ever taken to the PFC, or um, does that ring a bell with you at all in terms of the research you did for this? I thought particular. I had a Captain Wheeler may remember this as well. I thought I had something in here regarding Chief Williams, but I don't seem to be finding it right now. So I don't have the specifics, but and so I don't know about a citation. But I do believe he did serve a three-day suspension. Hmm. Okay. I think it may have even been self-imposed. Mm -hmm. that, that's my recollection too. That there was some self-imposed, but that it didn't go to the PFC. But obviously, right. it was a long time ago and. Well before and, my and time in the council, just honestly. My recollection. I don't know how accurate that is. Yeah. Does that ring a bell with you, Alder Ferrer, in terms of <laughs> my longevity? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I would concur that my recollection was is it was self-imposed penalty that the PFC was not a party to. It was not brought before the PFC. Was my recollection. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, any further questions? 
I just had perhaps one question at this point for either of you folks, and that is given the discussion of the MPPOA contract, um, both in the resolution and your analysis in your memo, Attorney May, do, do either of you know, does the AMPS agreement also have used the exact same language as MPPOA? Yeah, my recollection is that the, the police and fire supervisors have the same language. The exact same language as in the Association of Medicine? Yes. Police supervisor collective yep. bargaining. I'd have, I'd have to triple check, but I'm very, very sure of that. Okay. That's your understanding, too? The yes. Chief. Okay. Just curious. Any further questions? If not, thank you both very much. I appreciate you. it. Are there questions of any other staff? Seeing none, discussion on the motion to adopt the resolution? Does anybody seek recognition? Alderperson Rommel? This is troubling because I understand the argument that you've made, Attorney May, but here we've had a, a, an example of behavior that should not just be totally dismissed and cleared, go back to like a, a blank slate. And I don't really know how to, given the parameters and boundaries we're stuck in, how to give that message. I mean, my early thought was like maybe he pays for one-third of the bill, but I don't know if that's reasonable given the way you've outlined the way the ordinance is. But it just strikes me that there was something that that was just not really, you know, it was inappropriate in his action that it doesn't feel right to me just to give him all the money. I mean, that's just my personal point of view. Thank you. Further discussion? No further discussion, then? We'll come to an immediate vote. So the motion is to recommend adoption of the resolution to the council. Those in favor will say aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Aye. Motion carries. The resolution is adopted. Thank you again for all those that joined us for this matter. So then, without objection, uh, realizing that the remaining items, 18, 19, and 20, all involve the TIF staff team, and I presume we very likely we'll be going into closed session on the last item. I'd like to, yes, six, I'm sorry, 16, 19. Right. <laughs> I can finish my thoughts. So anyway, all the remaining items involve many, many uh, members of the TIF staff team that are present with us, with the exception of the 2017 audit plan. And so without objection, I would like to proceed to the audit plan at this time, if there's no objection. Uh, and ask uh, Danielle Hayes, our, our uh, internal auditor, to come forward. Um, some of you will recall that this presentation was on the February 13th Board of Estimates agenda, and that agenda and meeting went extremely long. And so we um, asked Danielle to come back, and we appreciate your patience with us. Oh, no problem. <laughs> and uh, we all uh, had a chance to review your um, presentation since it was included in our packets. So I'd don't know if it'll take a minute. Oh, no, I was, thought maybe it would take a minute to warm up. It did not. Very good. So it's, the floor is yours, uh, Danielle. Did you want to introduce Danielle at all, Dave, or say anything as an introduction? Thank you, Alder Verveer. So Danielle Hayes is our um, grants uh, manager and internal auditor, and uh, we thought it would be good to um, really kind of refresh um, uh, the Board of Estimates with um, what an audit program is and um, some of what we uh, have in our city ordinances and um, how we will proceed with our audit program um, in the near future. So, Daniel. 
All right. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm going to start with the first slide, which is our audit program. And so it's essentially made up of three components, and the first one being our external audit. So every year we have an annual financial audit where Baker Tilly comes in and audits our financial statements. Um, the second component is our single audit, which includes our federal and state grants. And so we look at that activity, and this is also audited by Baker Tilly. And then the third component is internal audit, which is one of my roles. And that role is to essentially test our internal controls and try to detect fraud. Um, and these three components really work together and make up our total audit program here with the city. So what is an audit? It is essentially a formal review to ensure that we are in compliance with established policies and procedures. Our process includes four steps. So the first one is the scope. So this is where we select the topic or process to review. The next step is planning, which is where we identify how the audit will be done and how we will gather the necessary information. The third step is field work, where we test controls at agencies, review transactions, and observe staff. And then the final step is the report, which is a published report on findings on areas where we need further improvement. So the role of the internal audit function is to evaluate and test internal controls, detect fraud, and increase efficiency and effectiveness of operations. The types of audits that have previously been done with the city are the purchasing card audit, which included the verification of receipts, appropriate approvals, and the allowability of charges, a cash handling audit, which reviewed how departments are handling their money and a, re a review of their internal controls, and the annual financial audit, which again is reviewed every year by Baker Tilly. The internal audit program is driven by the Madison General Ordinance, and it mandates that the audit program should be presented the first quarter of each year to the Board of Estimates, and then that Common Council can request additional audits as they see fit, and that our financial director is responsible for the methodology and conduct of the audit and may also request additional audits as he sees necessary. So we have an annual audit timeline that we follow. So in the first quarter is where this presentation will happen each year. And then this is also the time in finance that we're preparing the financial audit and also the single audit. During the second quarter, we'll, finance will be wrapping up both the financial and single audit, and this is, this is where I will begin work on the audit plan that I'll be outlining in a moment. During the third quarter is where finance will return to the Board of Estimates to give a report if there are any findings that happen with our audit, and I will then also continue to work on the audit plan. And then during the fourth quarter is where I'll come back again to report out any findings from my audit plan from the year, and also where we begin to do work for our audit plan for the next year. Now we will review our audit program for this year. So the reasons that we need an audit program include identifying potential non-compliance or weaknesses in our internal controls, creating a system for regular audits at key areas of risk. The 2017 program will begin to build our internal process and controls to create the framework to build a strong audit program in the future. Our 2017 program will cover three major initiatives cash handling, cost allocation, and grant management. I will explain each of these, first um, identifying the scope and timeline, and then providing some background on the topic. So our first initiative is cash handling. 
This scope is to create consistency with departments on cash handling to reduce errors, maintain internal controls, and mitigate risk. The timeline for this um, initiative is that there will be a Tyler cashiering update that's going to be released in May of this year, and I will also be updating the cash handling manual. And when people have to come and do the Tyler cashiering training, they will also get the updated cash handling manual, so they have all the tools necessary for us to have some good cash handling internal controls. Tyler cashiering, yes. So Munis is our financial software, and then Tyler cashiering is how we log any money that's coming into the city. Um, and then in the fall of 2017, uh, a questionnaire will be created to collect data, and then in 2018, we will be doing a full cash handling audit, which will include me going out to agencies to assess how they're handling Tyler cashiering and are they following our cash handling manual. So cash handling is any time we get cash, checks, credit cards, uh, in the mail, over the phone, online. And one of the most important pieces of cash handling is seg the segregation of duties. So making sure that the person who's accepting payments isn't the same one making the deposit, isn't the same one entering, in the, entering the information into the system. Also, proper and timely deposits, so making sure that departments aren't having large amounts of money in their departments that they're depositing on a regular basis. And also the correct use of Tyler cash sharing for all the cash received. So some interesting things to consider is that in 2016, over $12 million passed through the treasurer's office, and the top departments that did deposits were parking, parks, and the treasurer's office. So our second initiative for this year is cost allocation. And the scope is to use the 2016 financial data, along with Baker Tilly, Baker Tilly to um, have an updated process for completing our cost allocation plan. The timeline for this is to begin work in June of 2017 because that's when our financial statements will be um, done being audited. And hopefully, well, this will be completed by the end of 2017. Now, what does cost allocation really mean? So it includes the process of assigning central service costs consistently across all departments. Currently, this process is not consistent and does not include all central service agencies. This is very, a very useful tool that can be used to budget and provide the actual cost of our central service agencies. Some examples of agencies that we would consider central service would be our finance department, human resources, or our, or our IT department. Things to consider. The allocation for citywide central services is based off of past practice and is not consistent across agencies. And this affects our overhead rate by not being calculated consistently across agencies and potentially we're losing money for indirect or on indirect costs related to any grant activity. Our third and final initiative is grant management. The scope for this is to create a grant management work group which will develop a user-friendly guide to assist departments from the start, which is grant application, to the end, which is grant closeout. Once this is completed, we'll, we will begin to offer quarterly grant management trainings for those who are interested. This group will begin meeting next month with expected completion in 2018. Once we have a completed version, it will be presented to city leadership for final approval. So what do we mean when we talk about grant management? It is the standardized policy and procedures across all city departments, which is consistent with current federal requirements. 
Uniform guidance, which became effective in 2015, mandates grant administrative requirements and cost principles for all federal awards. Lack of compliance with these requirements could potentially put all of our federal funds in jeopardy. Things to consider that in 2015 for our single audit, which again is one of our three components, we had over 120 grants and $37 million in federal funding and $19 million in state funding, which is a substantial revenue source to the city. So when we think of grant management, there's essentially four elements. The first one is the application phase, which is where the completion of the application along with the budget is done and approved. We have the acceptance element, which is where we actually receive the letter of intent that we were awarded the funds. We would update MUNIS and get the account set up in order to spend the money. Then we have implementation, which is where we're actively completing work on the grant and spending the funds. And then at completion is the closeout process when all the work is done. This is essentially the life cycle of a grant management system. So how do we determine risk assessment topics? So prior to this presentation, an internal risk assessment will be completed, and components of this risk assessment include weaknesses that have been identified by staff, findings from external financial audits, observed or detected items through our, our own internal controls and audits, and then fraud trends identified by the FBI website specific to public corruption. Future topics will include our internal control testing, which is reviewed number one through 10. It's reviewed each year as part of our financial audit. And then we would also include as well equipment, related parties, and fraud reporting. Testing of existing internal controls will take place on a rotational basis, so each of these items will be audited in depth every five years. Additional audits will be performed based on observed trends and areas of risk. And if you have any questions about this, these are the key people in the finance department that you would want to reach out to with any questions. So with that, is there any questions from anyone here today? Thank you, Danielle. Any questions of Danielle? Motor person, Roma? I don't remember this presentation before. Maybe I missed the meeting. Has this been an ongoing thing, or are we kind of... No, you haven't missed anything. <laughs> We've been in non-compliance of our ordinance, in my opinion. Dave, why don't you explain? The ordinance really requires that we have an audit plan. We present it to the Board of Estimates. And my understanding is that had not been going on for a long time. And um, we have had some turnover um, among the staff that perform internal audits, and I think we're finally, with Danielle's um, arrival on the scene, getting to some stability there and being able to reactivate um, a process that I think has been moribund for many years, and uh, we want to make it a, a priority within the, the department. Other than that, we're starting, you know, basically to get our hands on everything. Just back to the cost allocation page, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned that um, we're not consistent across agencies. And I'm just wondering, what do you see that looks like changing over time? I mean, what is it that needs to happen? So I would say the first step is including all of the central service agencies. Can you um, say what those are just for? Um, so Previously, it has been done where it just included human resources, finance, and IT, and that was it. 
Um, and what we're looking at is including the attorney's office. Um, is it EOC? A civil rights? Is that what you mean? Civil rights. Mm -hmm. um, I'm drawing a blank on what the other ones are. So we're going to be adding more of the services that are used across all agencies. Mm -hmm. And this is where Baker Tilly comes into play. So the, we have a way that we've been doing it that we've just been repeating year after year. And we will be bringing in Baker Tilly to show them, here's how we're doing it and, and help us get to a more consistent way of doing it so that all the costs are allocated fairly across. And then making sure when it comes to um, the enterprise funds or it comes to grants that we're making sure that we know what does it really cost us to have these things and are we making sure that we're budgeting appropriately for it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Further questions of Danielle? I, I do want to just uh, mention in response to Alderperson Almost's first question that the lack of compliance with the ordinance as it relates to the Board of Estimates predates Finance Director Schmidtke's tenure in the building. So, uh, it, as he said, it's been many, many years. It's been many, many years since... Uh, one thing at a time. <laughs> it's since since uh, Board of Estimates has had a presentation of an audit plan. So thank All you very right. much. Thank we appreciate it. And thanks again for your patience coming back a second time, Danielle. So that uh, will leave us with several TIF-related items on our agenda this evening. Uh, the first would be agenda item number 16. Uh, Alderperson Rummel, a motion on oh, thank you. item 16. Adoption of item 16 of 16, authorizing the execution of a contract with MSA Professional Services, Inc., and the expenditure of up to $90,000 for survey of condition blight study services for the creation of tax incremental districts and redevelopment districts. Okay. It's been moved and seconded to recommend adoption of the resolution. Questions of staff of Dan and Matt? Alderperson McKinney. Um, I would just like to, for you to have to uh, to um, speak more about it because um, I was excited to see it, but I wanted you to really expand on what the goal is and what you hope to achieve by um, by this. When we are asked to look at the creation of a TIF district, for those of you who have one in your district, some of you may already be familiar, but we'll start with sort of the, the baseline. There are different kinds of tax increment districts that can be created, uh, mixed use, industrial, or in the case of a blight district, a, a blighted district. Uh, as a part of the creation of a blighted TID, we have to do what's called a survey of conditions or a blight study. Um, state statute requires that for the creation of a blight district, um, more than 50% of the parcels in that district by area must be identified as blight, or must be identified as blighted. Uh, the term blighted is defined in state statute, uh, both in the TIF law as well as the redevelopment district law. And so this uh, contract covers studies that would address both of those. Most recently, we've done more blight, uh, blight studies related to the creation of a TIF district. Mm -hmm. When we're asked to look at the creation of a blighted area TID, we then work with uh, the district alder, uh, department and division heads, uh, members of other departments, engineering, police, etc., to gather all the information necessary 
to conduct the survey of conditions. However, to ensure that we have a uh, a survey that's conducted essentially at an arm's length, we have an outside consultant do it to ensure that there's no, not even a hint of bias, either for or against, of a finding of blight. And that's what you have in front of you this evening. We have worked with uh, MSA in the past, and they've done very good work. Um, this is a something that we've worked with them in the past on, and we've had a similar contract for that. Um, the finding of conditions for the creation of a blight district is very important because obviously without that you can't create the TID. So this is one of the most important building blocks to start with as we discuss creating a TID or whether we can create a TID in a particular area. Uh, if you have other questions, I'm happy to answer. Right. Um, I was excited to see it, and so I just wanted for um, for myself and for um, the viewing audience to hear more about the importance of it. And so when this um, a study is completed, they look at the entire area. Do they are they uh, are, are there recommendations made? How do they determine which areas that they're looking at for the, uh, across the city? When we start the creation, when we when we look at the creation of a TID, there are usually one or one of two things has happened. One is that uh, the most common is that someone will have a project that they wish to have some kind of tax increment financing provided for that project. Uh, that's probably 90-plus percent, I think, of the districts that we look at, probably 95 or north percent of the districts that we look at. Um, once we have that request and we begin looking at underwriting and you know, is it going to be something that's feasible, we begin to look at the creation of a TID that would support that, uh, that tax increment request. Looking at the creation of a blighted area district, we then lay out a map and we start looking at all of the things that are around the area where there's a desire to to expend TID funds. Uh, now, this can usually mean that there is a private project that's looking for assistance, but it also oftentimes means, and you'll see this, I think, on number 19 tonight, uh, a lot of infrastructure work as well. Mm -hmm. So we will look at all of the things that are in and around that area, and there's a little bit of art, a little bit of science to it. Uh, we try to take into account all of the factors that go into making a city everything from infrastructure to uh, police calls to property values to other projects that we know are either pending or that might happen or things that are happening right now. And we try to draw an area that makes sense to get a, an initial study from. Now, once we have the results of that study, we usually will have to pare it back or do some cutting and pasting because oftentimes the study itself will find that only a portion of that area has been identified as blighted. And uh, for those of you who have TIDs in your area, Alder Rummel, Alder Revere, Alder Wood, um, I think Alder Cheeks as well, um, what you'll see is that at that point then we sit down with the findings from that study and go through it with all of the parties again to try to draw a boundary that not only makes sense for the projects that are involved, uh, but also that meets that minimum threshold of 50, of 50 plus percent of the parcels by area are blighted. Uh, one follow-up question, please. Um, and so in the designated um, the study, if there is a, a area that may be blighted uh, but does not have the um, the anchors that you've kind of 
describe to support that? What does that look like? Or would would this study even look at those areas, or would there be opportunities for those kinds of areas to be considered if they don't have those kinds of financial anchors to regenerate the TID? Generally speaking, we only do these studies when we have either the cre- uh, TID creation being proposed or the uh, or someone is proposing to create a redevelopment district under redevelopment law. Um, just simply doing blight studies to identify areas that are blighted is not something that this covers, and it's not something that we've contemplated. Um, on a side note, we, there are firms that do that kind of work, but they look at the entire city, and they look at it sort of at a, a very high level. When we do these studies where we have them completed, every single parcel, every single building has an individual uh, form completed for it, and there are photos of every single thing or every single property taken in that area. Because uh, when we do create a TID or a redevelopment district, we have to, by statute, notify every property owner in that area, um, and many of them are identified as, quote, blighted. Now, to your surprise and mine, I don't get a lot of thank you cards when we send out those uh, notices. But what we do want to ensure when we do these studies is that we have a very clear and concise and consistent record that identifies what is blighted and what is not. And part of our challenge, if you've read the blight statute, is that it is extremely broad. And we try to bring some level of as much consistency as we possibly can to a statute that's worded in a very broad fashion and can be interpreted uh, in many different ways. That being said, having done this for over a decade here at the city and having worked with these studies, I think that we have a very high standard. Um, We try to be consistent across the board every time, all the time, so that even if people don't like the answer that they get, I don't want to be blighted, is usually the first answer that they they throw to me, we can say, I understand that, first of all, that's not something that I would want to get in the mail, but we do this on a consistent basis, we treat everybody fairly and equitably across the board, and that if you look at studies that have been done over time, I believe that you would find the same result if you looked at one from three years ago, whether you look at one from now. So we we take it very seriously because property owners never like to get that letter saying your property may be blighted. Um, so I I hope that answers all of your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Further questions, Alderperson Romo? Thank you. And I've, I've studied a few of these, um, and they're very, as you said, they're very detailed. And often, as you also said, there's a property owner who calls you and is all worried that we're going to take your his property because it's been found blighted, and you have to say, oh, no. I always just say it's a plot device to get us um, an understanding of what this area is. But it occurs to Alder um, McKinney's question that makes me think, do we ever use this study in any other way? I mean, do we share it with building inspection? So when they do their every certain period of time studies, they might go, oh, look, we have this very detailed study. I mean, down to, like, the cracked cracks around a doorway or a window or, you know, to that degree of intensity. We do not share these studies with others. They are public documents, so if you want to see them, they're available to anyone who asks for them. Uh, Our purpose is for the creation of (coughs) tax increment districts. One of the things that I have told uh, 
innumerable callers over time is that, yes, you've received a letter that indicates that your property may be blighted. However, this has no impact on uh, your taxes. This has no impact on building code enforcements, whether they're active or not. If there's something going on, it continues. If it's not, we aren't going to send anyone out there. It doesn't mean that there will be increased police presence or or decrease in police presence either. It simply allows us, in your words, it's, it's a vehicle to get us to where we need to go. We we want to create a TID or redevelopment district. This study is the first step or one of the first steps in doing that. I mean, I guess I, it's kind of beating a horse here, but it's sort of ironic that we say things are blighted, but then we really don't require anybody to fix it. We only fix it on a project-by-project basis if we decide to do something and, and help either through a public improvement project or through a private assistance. But, I, you know, I think it's just, a, just what it is. But it just strikes me that we, have, we pay for this data. We could maybe use it more effectively. It looks like Matt wants to add something. I, I would just add that um, state statute outlines a, a variety of different items that, that would cause the property to be considered blighted from a TIF and redevelopment district standpoint. A lot of it has to do with functional obsolescence of, of buildings and if a building's vacant. So it's, it's not necessarily that there has to be something that has to be fixed or that there's not necessarily a, a building code violation uh, with a building that would be considered blighted under this standard. So, so it's not always a, a situation where um, a blighted property would necessarily need building orders taken on it because there may not be, they may not be in violation of, of our building code. Additionally, to add on to Matt's comments, there are some things that uh, we do consider that are outside of the uh, control of property owners. Some of those things can be crime, uh, the condition of the infrastructure in and around a particular area as well. So um, we try to look at every property, not only at the property itself, but holistically in the whole, looking at everything in and around it as well. Right, there's things you can correct and maybe things we can't correct. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. If, if your uh, paint is peeling and you have a roof problem, you can correct that, obviously. But if the street is crumbling and there are crime problems, individual property owners can't affect that themselves, obviously. Thanks. Further questions? I think I have just one question. Since this item was separated, I'll ask it. Was MSA the only respondent to the RFP? No. How many responses did we have, Dan? We had four respondents, three that were qualified. Okay, very good. Seeing no further questions, those in favor of the motion to recommend adoption will say aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Then, uh, obviously, gentlemen can stay put uh, for agenda item number 19, Alder Person Romo, acceptance of the report. Acceptance of the report of the Tid Half Mile Rule for Future Projects. Is there a second? Moving seconded to accept the report related to the Half Mile Rule. Questions? Alder Person Romo? I don't know that I've ever seen this before. Maybe I have. But I just thought it was interesting that, um, that you provided it. And is there a reason, or have we done it and I just didn't notice before? We have provided them. They're not required by state statute, but we do it as a course of, as a matter of courtesy, effectively notifying the Board of Estimates that, we'll be getting, that we will be beginning the approval process uh, through the Joint Review Board. Um, as you probably 
note, if you've read these, all of these items are identified for and accounted for in the capital budget for this year. Uh, we will simply be beginning the process of obtaining or requesting joint review board approval for each of these four uses of the so-called half-mile rule. So uh, I don't believe there's any action necessary to authorize these funds. I believe the budget has already been approved for those things. All we're doing tonight is simply informing you that this process is beginning. And, uh, and so in your experience or in, in um, Joe Gramacki's experience, is the Joint Review Board still okay with half-mile rule? There's not... There were some worries like a few years ago that we should be more cautious, but I will say from my experience, we have not seen them turned down. However, every day is a new day, okay. and um, we're we're using them more and more. Uh, I I would always urge caution when considering how much we use this, but. Um, these are projects that have all been budgeted for by the council, and that is up to obviously the policymakers. So um, we are simply moving those processes forward. Thank you. Further questions? I don't know if this is a question or a statement, but as it relates to the report related to TID 32, mm -hmm. half mile rule, when I read this, uh, Dan, it gave the impression that almost if not every item in the box summary of the approximately $7 million worth of expenditures mm -hmm. are outside of the TID 32 boundary, the way this is worded. And as I'm sure you all well know, most expenditures in of this $7 million are actually within the boundaries of TID 32. So I, I could see if, if, you know, this is going to be the format that JRB sees there might be eyes popping like, oh, my goodness, $7 million of half-mile rule, when, in fact, I could go through the list for you. Again, most of these are within the boundaries of TID 32. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep, I understand. Okay. Fair comment. Thank you. And then the, the other, just um, this perhaps is a question, and maybe it's more for uh, Kevin or whoever can respond to this. Could someone give me a quick reminder of what our TIF policy is relating to streetlight installation? I know Attorney Zellhoff, retired ACA Zellhofer, wrote a memo on the topic, and not all streetlights are created equal. As it relates to TIF, Mr. Gramaki is volunteering to answer this, so one of you could 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 uh, surrender your chair. I certainly don't want to um, uh, not support Arbor Hill's neighborhood having improved lighting, so it's not my intent. It's just more a curiosity question that always comes up, because as you know, some street lights are accessible and some aren't, and That's Ann's correct. interpretation correct. was if they're accessible, then they can't be funded by TIF. That is correct. State law determines that uh, those things that are otherwise accessible uh, to property owners abutting that improvement will still be accessible. Um, so there's really no way around that, and it depends on, there's a formula involved with that, Sometimes the assessments that we have were 50% of the cost or 10% of the cost accessible. The TIF can be used for the portion that is not accessible. So, for instance, if you had a um, sidewalk improvement and it was 50% accessible to you, the city could use the TIF to pay for the other 50%. Those situations where we can't use it at all is where the city... Um, policy through the Board of Public Works states that it's 100% accessible to the abutting property owner. The most 
uh, I guess the most, um, the biggest example I get, we get of that is when people request pedestrian skill street lighting, where it's, you know, 10 feet or, or less, and it, the policy of Board of Public Works is that it's 100% accessible to the property owner if they want that, instead of the, the cobras, which hang, you know, 20 or 30 feet over the uh, over the street. Now, the cobras, uh, the cobra lights uh, that everyone's familiar with um, can be paid with TIF. There's, I don't know the formula, but there's a portion that is accessible and a portion not. So uh, with that particular Arbor Gate uh, proposal, um, we are paying for that portion that is um, eligible under TIF law. Thank you. So clearly this has all been thought through in terms yes. of traffic engineering and the assessment policy and yes. so forth. By the way, I see a former older person. Where is here? And several other people have just come in the room. I, you probably are not all here for the Board of Estimates meeting. Is there another meeting in this room? What time is that meeting? What's that meeting? Could someone? T it's a public listening session for the natural hazard mitigation plan update. Yeah. Well, we aren't aware of that, and I don't see any. There's nobody here to present, right? Or in that meeting, you. So, I just wanted to alert folks that that I thought maybe you were in a different room, but. We'll continue. So, uh, in turn, back to the street lighting. The, so clearly, the um, the funds, the proposed use of the half mile rule are for so-called area lights. In other words, as you call them, cobra head. Joe. Yeah, cobra head. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. In other, this is just a, a recommendation since the Common Council adopted the TID resolution for the latest project in this in this TID. Perhaps you want to update the the paragraph related to that there there could be an additional anticipated project is in the last sentence of the TID 35 report. That's actually a, um, that's actually reflective of, of another project, not uh, Landmark Oaks. Landmark Oaks isn't in TID 35? Uh, Landmark Oaks is in TID 35. The last sentence is referring to a project that has yet to come before city staff. Oh, okay. We've been made aware of is a potential project that may occur. So this, this oh, so even with Landmark Oaks that the council approved at our last meeting, you could still close the district this year, the way I read this? Uh, with the one remaining year of affordable depending housing. Depending if the three. other project presents itself. and Really? Yeah. It's yeah. that powerful a district? Yeah. Great. It's doing really well. It's been a good so I read this correctly that this would be the final year? Assuming that that other project that we yeah. haven't seen at the possibly, early. possibly, possibly, yes. possibly, but that's why the caveat is there because we don't know if that other project okay. will occur. Very good. Any further questions on this item? Seeing none, those in favor of accepting the report will say aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. That takes us to agenda item number 20. <coughs> is there a need for closed session, gentlemen? What's your thought? It's your prerogative. So staff mm -hmm. says it's not necessary at this point. Okay, very good. Why don't we then proceed with the uh, discussion we don't need a motion at this time I don't think right this is um, a discussion at this point yeah so this you evening want to present your report Joe? yes um, for those of you that were at the last meeting where we presented a jobs tip request this is actually the methodology um, as at the last meeting we presented both the request for a jobs project jobs tip project waiver of gap analysis 
at the same time that we were presenting the project. And the reason being was that we had a, a timing problem with when we could introduce a resolution and the project could commence construction on time. Uh, in this case, we have a little bit more construction um, leeway as far as timing so that we can actually do it in the way in which uh, the jobs TIF program was actually envisioned. Um, so if what you're being asked to do this evening is to consider this particular report for the purposes of uh, deciding whether this merits a uh, waiver of our traditional gap analysis. Um, at the last meeting, I also went through uh, for uh, members of this board um, what that program entails. There are two options uh, for a potential employer that seeks jobs TIF assistance. One is to undergo traditional um, gap analysis, which, which they would enable them to um, access about 60% of the TIF generated by the project. The other method which would be to ask for a gap analysis waiver of this body where they could receive up to 40% of the uh, TIF generated by that project. Uh, but before we go through that, you would have to go to the Board of Estimates and ask for permission, as it was deemed by City Attorney's Office that this qualifies an exception to policy, and therefore exceptions are always considered by the Board prior to the introduction of a funding resolution. So long story short, you'll be deciding today or looking at this as to whether or not the facts presented in this report merit uh, the granting of such a waiver um, and that, it, 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 assuming the board does so this evening, uh, we would introduce a funding resolution which the Board of Estimates would see again, uh, which would have the results based on um, um, the, uh, uh, the project at hand. Um, this particular application is for Extreme Engineering solution, uh, Solutions Incorporated, uh, referred to hereafter as the employer. Uh, they were founded in 2002. They're currently occupying about 44,000 square feet at uh, 3225 Deming Way in Middleton. They employ 170 uh, full-time equivalent employees currently. They are proposing to construct a 115,000 square foot manufacturing space on 13 acres of land in the Silicon Prairie uh, development at the uh, quadrant of uh, Mineral Point Road and South Point Road, um, the far west side of Madison. Uh, this would be a new tax incremental district, number 47, which would be proposed to uh, this body at a later date. Um, the total project cost is approximately $15.3 million, and the val estimated value of the project is about $9.1 million. Um, the applicant, the, the employer has asked for a gap analysis waiver, which in this particular case would not exceed 40% of the net present value of tax increments generated by the project. In this case, that would represent uh, a maximum of $595,000. Um, the project meets um, the standards in terms of TIF policy compliance for equity. Uh, it's a 40% of the TIF is obviously below our 55% gateway policy. It is self-supporting uh, in that it, it supports its own TIF that it generates. And TIF staff will require the customary guarantees of both increment and job creation of, of, principle, of a principle of the employer um, for a um, 
uh, for the loan and for a five-year period for the creation of the jobs. Um, the job, the employer estimates that 170 jobs, which range between engineering, manufacturing, sales, support, and administration, um, will be retained in the city of Madison for five years as a result of the project. Um, our recommendation at this point is um, that, um, as, as I mentioned at the last meeting, uh, this particular program is guided by policy rather than empirical data, which you're used to, me coming in saying, here's what the gap in the financing is. What this program basically does is leverages the retention or creation of jobs. So what you're being asked to do is say, well, does this meet our objectives and policies concerning job creation as a public purpose of the city. Um, and the, one of the ways to measure that is both between the number of jobs being retained, which our policy is that in order to consider this, the uh, applicant or the employer must have be retaining or creating at least 100 full-time jobs, which in this case they're at 170. And the other thing is that they have to present a TIF policy goal statement, which they have as part of the applications attached, that lists the types of goals and objectives of the city that this particular project would meet. So what you would be deliberating on this evening is whether or not this project, as stated before you, meets those, uh, meets those guidelines, and uh, you'd make a decision on whether or not to grant uh, the waiver in this particular case. Uh, staff is here. In fact, I have the and Representative Rob Skidmore from the company is here to answer any questions. Uh, I believe he's registered. Did you get a register for no, him? No, but uh, we can certainly that. hear from him. Okay. If he's uh, interested. So you wish to ask any questions, um, and uh, staff is here to answer any questions at, at your disposal. Thank you, Joe. Questions of Joe or any of his colleagues, older person, Romo? Okay, thanks. It sounds like um, it meets most of our standards, so except there is, so that's what you're giving feedback on, that it meets the job TIF standards? Yes. Okay, so it does seem like it. But I did have a couple questions. One is clearly, welcome to Madison from Middleton. So we're not creating new jobs. We're basically moving the pie to our pie, which, you know, I guess that's part of what cities do. They compete. But mm. so how do you kind of weigh that when you factor in this is just the bottom line is only our own growing jobs? Is that um, it, it, that's actually the, I it's a policy question that you as policymakers okay. have to answer. Um, and then okay, the other, at the end of um, your report, before the writing gets really small. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Number it, was, six. it was a PDF. I couldn't make it, it any better. It says, um, you know, if there were go below 170 jobs, the city would pay an amount. I think we discussed last time that the, yeah. like the, the federal rate is what, 35000 Was that is yeah. that what we would write into? Well, we haven't negotiated that part. That's that for the, the next, next portion. Um, we'll, we will have that discussion with the employer. And then that would come back with the final yes. agreement. Okay. Yes. Um, and then the final question doesn't exactly fit our TIF standards, but when you look at whether it's an infill or whether it's improvements, all these not applicable. Mm -hmm. So is this served well by transit and all those kind of things that we also think of when we think of growing our city? T t today it is not uh, served well by transit, um, but you know certainly 
uh, one of the goals of of the jobs TIF program is to retain and attract uh, more uh, businesses within the city of Madison proper so that over time, as we hopefully are able to expand our transit system, uh, we can better connect our residents uh, with these positions than if the positions were located you know, somewhere much farther out. Thank you. Alderperson McKinney. I'd like to follow up on that response uh, because um, when you said that right now it's not connected regarding transit, so how is it proposed that people will get to these jobs and these positions if it's not uh, transit ready? Is that, a, is that something for consideration now? I mean, I think this is a, an area of concern that we have with, with many of our employment districts currently within the city. Um, many of our employment districts are not well served by transit. Um, you know, it's an ongoing conversation that I know that uh, my colleagues uh, throughout the city have been having on, on how we can better serve our employment districts with transit. Uh, I think it's one of the goals over time as we expand uh, both uh, our, our existing bus service, but also expand into a bus rapid transit system as well. Um, and conversations that, that over time people are having are around regional transportation. Um, but uh, this site, admittedly today, is, is most easily accessible by car um, and, and not uh, very much so by transit. So uh, the question will be over time as, as we continue to build our transit system, uh, if, if we can, can better serve this and other uh, employment centers throughout the city. Just a follow-up question as an observation is that um, when you say over time, um, that two things that concerns me is once you, when you say over time, because I understand that there is no connection, and when you say that access is by car, and so that seems to already eliminate you know, a certain group of people, and, and so um, I think it's a great thing, but still moving toward accessibility for individuals who need employment, and it doesn't, that over time seems really pushed out, and so, um, and I know you don't have the answer to that, I'm just kind of frustrated by it, mm -hmm. I'm sure you are as well, um, but when the um, uh, the exception says that you're going to maintain a certain number of jobs. It also says to me maintaining a certain number of jobs for people who have access to those jobs and not really opening up wide enough to really a, a, a address uh, the issue of those who don't have that transportation access. So I'm just kind of in a circle. I know that you're in the same place too, but I just needed to say that. I think one thing to, to point out that uh, in this case the company is growing. Uh, they're going to be in a substantially larger footprint. So I think also from a policy perspective one must consider that over time they're likely going to be increasing their employment and, and, and you know growing into this much larger facility. Um, so there, there likely will be some opportunities for individuals that currently aren't employed by them to, to assume positions here as well. Just one follow-up question. Um, does the company have been 
place now any ride share or any um, assistance to um, potential employers? Because sometimes there's a ride share system that's set up that the, the company recognizes. Is there anything in place for that at all? Not that I'm aware of, but we can certainly follow up with the company as, as we continue our conversations. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Any further questions of staff? Then uh, I presume that you would be more comfortable with a formal motion as opposed to just operating by consensus, which we often do with TIF discussions. So then, uh, Alder Person Rommel, would you wish to make a motion relating to the waiver Move for the Move acceptance jobs of the report of yeah. the jobs TIF. Second. Do you want something more specific, gentlemen, in terms of the the something gap analysis waiver? Something that grants the waiver, yes. Please. Um, Can we rephrase it? Okay. I'm pleased to perhaps would it just be granting the jobs tip grant gap analysis waiver for engineering solutions? I move that. Okay, and it was seconded then. Any discussion on the motion to grant the waiver? Seeing none, those in favor will say aye. Aye. Opposed no, motion carries. Thank you all very much. That concludes our uh, agenda in terms of all legislative ad uh, items. And uh, would like to do the honor of adjourning the Board of Estimates for the final time with the moniker Board of Estimates before we reconvene in a few weeks as the city's new finance committee. Alderperson Rummel moves uh, to adjourn. Uh, Alderperson McKinney seconds. Those in favor of adjournment will say aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries for the final time. The Board of Estimates stands adjourned. Thank you all. Have a good evening.